All right, Matthew chapter number nine, very familiar passage, and uh, many of us probably could quote this, have it memorized, but I want to look at uh, uh, verses 36 through verse number 38, the Bible says that Jesus was moved with compassion, and talk about compassion and what it is, um, and try to look at this from a biblical standpoint. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 through verse number 38. Follow along as I read, if you would, please. But when he, that's Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Father, we... We do pray that you will bless our time this evening and that you will, uh, Lord, speak to our hearts and accomplish your will in our lives, and may we be yielded to that this evening, and uh, we'll thank you for what it is you do in our midst tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, compassion is one of the hallmarks of Christianity. It's a word that we use often. We speak of things like the compassion of Jesus or the compassion of Christ. We speak of the need to have compassion. We speak of the uh, idea of ministering or serving with compassion. But if I were to ask you tonight to define the word compassion from a biblical standpoint, I think a lot of us would be at a loss. I think it's one of those words that we use an awful lot but we never really consider what does compassion truly mean. And I say that I don't think a lot of people seem to really have a good grasp on the idea of what compassion is from a biblical standpoint and be able to define it is just from experience of listening to people and some things that I have observed. Uh, a lot of people would describe compassion this way, feeling bad for the hurt of others feeling bad for the hurt of others. I think that falls far short from what biblical compassion is. Uh, when we were in Arizona, there was a church that put out a notice that they were looking to hire somebody. They were looking to hire somebody to fill what they called a compassions manager. I am pretty sure they had no idea what, was compa what compassion was, actually. When they said they were looking to hire somebody for a compassions manager, I know that that sounds, oh, well, look at that church. They have a compassions manager. Uh, but what is, that, what is that and what do they do? I, I, it seems like so many people think it's just an emotion or it's something that can be managed, a compassions manager. But compassion is not just a simple emotion. And the truth of the matter is, if you study the Bible and come up with a biblical definition, you will find out that you don't manage compassion. In fact, compassion will manage you. Compassion is something that will move you and drive you to action. You don't manage it. It takes control of you. The Bible says that Jesus was moved with compassion. It's really not that simple a word. And if you were to do a word study on the, on the word compassion in our Bible, you'd find out that it was somewhat of a complex word. It's not as simple as we make it out to be a lot of times. There are five Hebrew words in the Old Testament and eight Greek words in the New Testament, all translated correctly into our English version as compassion. 
But that's a lot of different words out there to come up with just this one word, compassion. And it's no wonder that we don't all have a kind of nailed down a definition, an idea of what it is. I think if you study these words, if you study these, these words in the Old Testament, the five in the Old Testament, the eight in the New Testament, and you take a look at the context in which the word shows up, I think that uh, one of the definitions that would work well is that compassion is love in action. Love in action. It's far more than a feeling. It's far more than just something that you manage. Uh, Somebody has said this, that compassion is a deep awareness of the sufferings and the trials of others, accompanied by an overwhelming drive to bring comfort and relief to the suffering one. I think that's a pretty good working definition. If you look at this word that we're speaking about right now, this word compassion, you notice that it is a word that has the prefix calm at the front of it. And I don't know about you, but I'm one of those guys who just likes to study words and, and look at where they came from and so on and so forth. If you study our English language and you look at words that have com as that prefix, what you find is that the prefix com speaks of that which is complete or made perfect or made whole. So think about that for a second. Compassion. Calm. And then you hear passion. If you use that idea that calm, the prefix, makes something whole or complete or perfect, then we might say this, compassion is passion that has been made complete, whole, or perfect. And that is what you find in the scriptures, that compassion is not just a feeling that you have oh, I feel bad for somebody, you pity somebody. That's really what that is. Uh, it's not something that you can manage because over and over and over again, we find that it is something that moves somebody else to action. I read about a little boy who I think knew what compassion is. A little four-year-old boy had a next-door neighbor, an elderly gentleman who had just lost his wife. And he noticed as he was outside playing one day that that old, uh, older man was uh, sitting on his front porch in a rocking chair and he was exceptionally sad. That little boy went over to visit with his elderly neighbor. His mother noticed that and when he made his way home, his, his mother asked him, what, what did you say to Mr. Jones next door? And he said, oh, mom, I, I didn't say anything to Mr. Jones. I just sat with him and helped him cry. I think that is a good illustration of compassion. Passion made perfect or complete or brought to full fruition. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is doing constantly in the Word, isn't it? Whether he is working with the weary or the weak, the wandering or the weeping, the wounded or the wretched, Jesus is working to help people get past and to find some relief in the grief or in the hardships that they're going through. Now, here's a great problem with the idea of compassion and biblical compassion. You and I could spend all night tonight learning what it is and still never be moved by it. 
It's not good enough just to know what compassion is. We need to be moved with compassion. If we're going to be like Jesus, we should be moved with compassion in certain situations. And so as we come to Matthew chapter number 9 and look at these verses, verse 36 through 38, there's a, a number of things I want to look at with you tonight, and we'll move through them rather quickly, but, but notice some things that are exemplified in the life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what it was that caused him to be moved with compassion and to minister with compassion. And the first thing I notice in verse number 36 is a considerate study. A considerate study. The Bible says when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. As you look at this text and you see that Jesus saw the multitudes and it's followed up with this phrase, he was moved with compassion, you really need to stop and ponder and to think about this and see that Jesus himself was carrying out a considerate study. Here's what you and I do a lot of times. We go to Walmart, we go to Target, we go to a, a baseball game or we go out into public somewhere and we see a bunch of people and we notice them we notice people who have colored their hair more colors than the coat that Joseph was given by his father. We notice people that have more ink on their bodies than a lot of books have in their pages. I'm not making fun, I'm just noticing what we notice. We notice people who have more holes in their body than a block of Swiss cheese. I'm not making fun. I'm just noticing what we notice. And somebody says, well, I saw those people. And the truth of the matter is, if that's all we see, the different color hair and the ink and the holes in the body, we have not looked at them the way that Jesus looks at them. And it's important for us to notice that this word saw in verse number 36 is translated from a Greek word that stresses the fact that Jesus didn't just catch a glimpse of these people. He didn't just look through the crowd and say, whoa, look at that guy's hair, and uh, wow, did you see those tattoos, and wow, look at all those holes. But rather, he took time to contemplate them. This word, saw the multitudes, this word saw, has the idea of looking into, of examining of knowing a person. The word is sometimes used to speak of somebody who stops along the way to pay a visit with somebody. It holds the idea of interviewing a person. The idea is that Jesus took the time out of his day and out of his schedule to stop and give serious consideration to the people he saw around them. He, he, he didn't look at just the surface things, the hair, the ink, the piercings. He looked past that. And by the way, if you will look past that, you will recognize that all of those things are nothing more than a symptom of a heart crying out for attention. That's all that is. Jesus was constantly doing this. As you read through the Gospels, you find that Jesus is constantly looking at people, contemplating them, examining, not judging. That, the word does not hold the idea of judging. It holds the idea of considering. 
He did it with Simon and Peter and Andrew in Matthew 4 and verse 18. He did it with Peter's mother-in-law while she lied sick in Matthew 8, 14. He did it with the multitudes in Matthew 8, 18 and in Matthew 14, 14. He did it with Matthew the tax collector in Matthew 8 and verse 34. He did it with the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years in Matthew 9 and verse 22. In Matthew 9 and verse 23, he did it with the minstrels at Jairus' house. In in Mark chapter 6, Six and verse 34 and Mark chapter 9 and verse 25 again he contemplated much people in Luke 13 and verse 12 he looked at a woman who had an infirmity with eight uh, for 18 years and he contemplated her situation in, in Luke 18 24 he examined the young ruler in Luke 19 and verse 5 he looked at Zacchaeus that way in John chapter 1 and verse 38 he looked at John the Baptist disciples that way in John 1 and verse 4 47, it was Nathaniel. In John 5 and verse 6, it was the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. In John 6 and verse 5, it was a great company. In John 8 and verse 10, it was the woman who was taken into adultery. In John 11 and verse 33, it was Mary at Lazarus' womb. In John 19 and verse 26, it was his own mother, Mary. Some 20 times in the Bible, the Holy Spirit of God impressed upon the human writers to let us know that Jesus was considering people. He was examining them. Ask yourself the question, this question honestly. You need not answer aloud. When is the last time I did that? When is the last time I looked past the surface to examine to see somebody the way that Jesus sees somebody. I know that we can't see their heart, but we can recognize something. All those things that we notice on the surface, they're symptoms of the heart. If you're going to be moved with compassion, there must be time for a considerate study. Some years ago now, when we were living in Quebec and planting the church there, I was out door knocking one day, and I was in a, an apartment building, and uh, I was trying to get through some doors and, and, and you know, give people the gospel, so on and so forth, and I knocked on one door, and a man answered the door, and I instantly recognized that he was, on the surface, not exactly like everybody else that he might have been just a little bit off from everybody else. He was happy to engage me in conversation. But I looked at him on the surface and I thought, this probably isn't going to go anywhere. And I was anxious to end the conversation and move on and get to another door where I thought maybe we would see more fruit. You ever have the Holy Spirit of God slap you in the back of the head? Well, he slapped me that day, and he said, hey, why don't you consider that man for a minute? I took the time to remind God that I was busy knocking doors, and I had a schedule, as if he didn't know. And he said, but why don't you just stop for a second? And you know, I took a pause, and I stopped. And I looked past the surface the best that I could. When I saw him, I, I saw a man that was not completely normal, as if anybody is. 
He was a bit different. Culture had passed him by. Surely the religious crowd had no time for him. He was a, a down and out or a downcast in society. There is no doubt. But as I stopped to consider this man, it seemed as if the Holy Spirit of God wanted to remind me of something. He's not just an outcast. He's somebody Jesus died for. As we talked at his door and we continued our conversation and I began to have an open door to give him the gospel, that man was moved to tears, literally. And through tears, he said this to me. I never believed in all my life that somebody would care enough about me to tell me this. We all need to just take some time every once in a while to stop and consider the multitudes. A considerate study. Now, here's the thing. I know that you're busy. I know that I'm busy. We live busy schedules, and, and, and it takes time to consider the multitudes in this way, to kind of look at a person and examine a person and get to know a person. And I understand that you're busy, and you probably understand that I'm busy. And if you like, at the end of service, we can stand in the foyer and we can trade calendars and see who's the busiest. But let's ask ourselves this. Are any of us busier than Jesus was for three years of public ministry? But Jesus always had time for a considerate study of the multitudes. And the truth is, you and I will never be moved with compassion if we do not take the time to consider the multitudes. Remember that the eyes are the gateway to the heart. This is why we're told to guard them so often in Scripture. But we ought to use them effectively so as to see people in the state that they are and with the needs that they have. So I see that in this text, the, the first thing that is required to have compassion, biblical compassion, and be moved with it as Jesus was moved is there needs to be a considerate study of the multitudes. When we do that, I think very often we will become aware, as Jesus very much so was in this text, of a critical situation. A, a critical situation. It starts with a considerate study. It moves on to a, recognizing a, cons a, a, crit a critical situation. Notice verse number 36. I know you know it. I know you probably have it memorized. But notice it with me for a second, if you would. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Why? What had Jesus seen when he considered? When Jesus stopped to conduct this examination of those in the multitude that he looked at, what did he see? Well, the Bible says he was moved with compassion because here's what he saw. He saw people who had fainted, were scattered abroad, and as sheep having no shepherd. Do you and I ever notice people that way? Think about what Jesus saw. The Bible says, first of all, he saw them as fainted. They were despondent. That's the idea of that word. They were fatigued. They were weary. They were worn out. Hey, listen, as a Christian, if you're worn out in 2020, I guarantee you lost people are. Somebody prayed for the offering tonight and prayed, how, how, do, how did people make it through without the Lord? People are worn out. 
fatigued and tired and despondent. Satan is a hard taskmaster. We don't and shouldn't look at the lost as being free because they're not. They're in bondage. They're a pawn in the hand of the prince of darkness. And, and we need to see past the temporal and the exterior. Put on some spiritual sunglasses and you will see people day after day after day, especially in this year and in this society, in this culture, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon, people who are fatigued, despondent, worn out, people who have a burden that needs to be lifted. And we should not be aggravated, and I preach to myself, when we see lost people doing what lost people naturally do, and when they can't see this internal truth themselves, remember that if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. I think you and I can look around and understand a lot of what is happening in 2020. I would say the vast majority of what is happening in 2020 is a spiritual battle. We understand that. That, that if it we're talking about the election or we're talking about the taking away of rights from, uh, that our government is actively doing and taking our rights away here and there and everything else, understand that there is something far greater than just what you see on the surface. This is a spiritual battle, but do not expect lost people to see that. They don't understand that. That's, why they, that. that's why they direct their anger at you and I. That's why lost people go in riot and rip apart cities and buildings and go in loot and all that because they just think this is a free-for-all and the strongest survive. They don't understand the spiritual battle or the spiritual aspect of it. In John chapter 8, verse 32 through 36, we see this illustrated. They don't understand that they're in bondage to Satan himself. In John chapter 8, verse 32 through 36, the religious leaders of the day said this. And first Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him. Who's they? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They answered him, and they said, we be Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? I wrote after that verse, verse 33 in my Bible, really? Never in bondage to any man? How about Egypt? How about Assyria? How about Babylon? How about the Medes or the Persians? How about Greece? How about Rome right now as you make that statement? How about sin? Lost people don't understand the bondage that they're in. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. The Holy Spirit of God reaffirms that in Romans 6 and verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, to him you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. When we look at the multitudes as Jesus did, we will see them fainted. By the way, fainted, past tense. Past tense, already, already worn out. Not getting worn out, already. Already despondent. And as you look at that, you'll recognize as Jesus did a critical situation. Not only did Jesus see these people as despondent, 
But he also saw them as scattered abroad. He saw them dispersed and discouraged without any hope. You and I need to remember something. The multitudes of this world are perishing. They, they don't have the Savior by, them, by their side. They're alone in this world. They are truly without any hope whatsoever. Ephesians 2 and verse 12 has always struck me. Most of us have Ephesians 8 and 9 memorized. Many of us have Ephesians 10 memorized. I wonder how many of us have memorized Ephesians 2 and verse 12 where there is a five-fold curse pronounced against lost people. That at that time, speaking about you and I as we were Gentiles before we got saved, you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a bad place to be. The perishing multitudes of the world are alone. They may put on a, a facade and act as if everything's okay, and you may look at them and think, well, they're doing just fine. But they're not. Take time to look at them and contemplate them as Jesus did. You will see a life that is but a vapor. It appeareth for a moment and it vanisheth away. Some years ago, we had a young Marine who visited our church. And I believe made a profession of faith along with his wife that I think was sincere. He went off to fulfill his service to the country and came back every once in a while, but he was kind of hit and miss. And I remember one day after a Sunday morning service, he showed up. We were done with service probably an hour prior to that. We were just kind of done with all the fellowshipping and people filtering out, and my family and I were getting ready to leave, and he drove up, and he came in. And at first, he was kind of jovial, and hey, how are you doing, and good to see you, this, that, and the other. And I thought, he's not here just to say hi. He knows what time our services are. So I talked to him for just a bit. And I said, hey, how's it going, man? Oh, it's going great. I said, really? Well, not so much. Over the next several minutes, probably 45 at least or so, I guess, he began to lay out for me how his life was just totally falling apart. The things weren't good at home with the marriage and the family. He... He was out of the Marines now. He couldn't seem to secure a good job. He was upset because uh, he himself had uh, been born in the United States to parents who came here illegally, and he was worried that they were going to be deported from the country, even though he served as a, as a Marine. And he said, you know, I was on my way out to the end of Bell Road. It's the main road in our town, and it... it ended out in the middle of the desert where we were it was very built up but when you got to the end of Bell Road it was just the desert we used to go shooting out there and such he said I was heading out to the end of Bell Road 
My purpose and my plan was to get out there in the desert and take my life. He said, but I passed by the church. And this is what he said. And I remembered that there were people there that loved me. Try to be a church that shows compassion so that people will remember there's a place where they're loved. Jesus saw this situation, and, and the next thing he saw was them sheep as having no shepherd. They're in danger. Sheep who do not have a shepherd are in great danger. Never become so cold and callous that we, we can't see the eternal danger of a soul without Jesus Christ, one that is under condemnation, not in the future, but right now. He that believeth not is condemned already. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth right now, present tense, already on him. And as we behold the multitudes, we need to see the danger that they're in, and we should never forget the, that their prospects for the future are even worse than the present. I said this morning, I think it bears repeating, for you and I, 2020 is as bad as it gets. I mean, it might get a little worse in 2021. But for the lost, this is as good as it gets. This is it. We need to recognize that there is an eternal fire burning. And that's where they're headed. Unless somebody intervenes. When I was working for the prison system here in Connecticut, you could go grow pretty cold and indifferent towards people very, very quickly. If you were going to survive on the job, in fact, it was almost a requisite to be on the job, to just kind of become indifferent and cold. I remember working in the prison one evening on a second shift, and I remember getting a, a phone call from a mother who was desperate because her son was standing on a tier in our youth section and he had called his mother and he said, Mom, I'm done. I'm committing suicide. I remember arriving to the tier where he stood by the phone still where he had just phoned his mother to tell, him, tell her she was taking his, he was taking his own life. At first, I didn't recognize what he had wrapped around his legs, but then I did. It was toilet paper all wrapped around the outside of his legs. And as we opened that, that, that door, that sliding door to get down the tier, he took a match and he lit himself on fire. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody on fire. But I can promise, if you did, you wouldn't care what color their hair was, how many holes they had in their skin, or how many tattoos they had on their body. You would do one thing and one thing only. You would work to get the fire out. And you and I should remember something. There's a fire burning. And look past the pettiness of the hair, and the holes, and the ink. I know that night, 
as indifferent as I could be in the prison about what was going on in somebody's life, there was one thought in my mind. You got to put the fire out on that boy. And you and I should look at the multitudes and see them as Jesus did. There should be this, this considerate study. There should be uh, this leading to seeing this as a, a, as a critical situation. Understanding what is going on. And then notice with me, if you would, that as we move a little bit further, and you see all of this, you'll see one more thing that Jesus noticed, and this is so important. You will see at the end of verse number 37, the fourth thing that Jesus saw when he considered the multitude in this critical situation. He saw people who were despondent, dispersed, discouraged, in danger, but he also saw a deficiency of laborers. A deficiency of laborers. He said the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. There's 7.7 billion people on planet Earth tonight. 2.1 billion of those people claim Christianity under any flag or any stripe. 1.2 billion of those who claim Christianity under any flag or any stripe are actually Roman Catholic. That's a considerable deficiency of laborers. It's actually just a considerable de de deficiency in the amount of Christians versus how many people in the world. But I want us to understand, Jesus was not comparing how many Christians were in the world compared to how many unbelievers were in the world. Jesus was comparing how many unbelievers were in the world compared to how many laborers there were in the world. You see, think about God. It only took Moses and Aaron to defeat Pharaoh. Gideon only went to war with 300. God does not need a majority to win the lost. But he does need laborers. He needs more Christians who will look to win the world. And the truth of the matter is, right now, with as few Christians there are compared to the 7.7 billion people on planet Earth, there are more than enough Christians in this world today to win the world. It's a fact. There are more than enough Christians. Here's the problem. There are not enough laborers. There's a deficiency in the laborers, in the number of laborers. And we're in a critical situation because of that. And that leads us to the last thing I want us to notice. I see this considerate study, a critical situation. And then I notice in verse 38, Jesus' command for a, cor for a correct supplication. A correct supplication. Pray ye, therefore. The word pray is in the imperative. In other words, this is a command. Failure to pray as Jesus tells us to in this verse, is a failure to obey a command of God just as much as the command thou shalt not steal is a command. Or thou shalt not commit adultery, or thou shalt have no gods before me, or thou shalt not kill. If we're not praying this way, we are breaking a commandment of God himself. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And this is the one prayer request actually command to pray from Jesus 
But we often are wrong in our response to it. And I think we don't really pray in accordance to the way Jesus commanded us to pray. Just consider some things about this and about this text and consider some ways that we really ought to pray as Jesus told us to in Matthew 9 and verse 38. I think number one, we should pray with a surrendered will. With a surrendered will. I think too often, here's what we do. Lord, send laborers. Make sure there's somebody else and not me. We pray and we think we know who should go. We even name them sometimes. Lord, send Tim, but don't send me. Or we just say, Lord, send Tim, and never say, Lord, send me. But remember what Jesus is looking for? He's not looking for foremen. He's in charge of the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's not looking for you and I to suggest to him who might be a good, uh, a good laborer. He's just looking for laborers. I like that word laborer. It might well be translated this way, doers. That's what it means, doers. It's a great word. And so I think as we come to this text in Matthew 9 and verse 38 that we can quote so well, we miss what Jesus says to pray or how he says to pray. And I think the first thing we need to do is we pray with a surrendered will. Number two, we pray taking a step forward. Taking a step forward. When you are moved with compassion, you will not be content to pray, Lord, send somebody else. When you are moved with compassion, your prayer will be, Lord, here am I, send me. If you know something about compassion, your prayer will be, Lord, send somebody else. But if you are moved with compassion as Jesus is moved with compassion, your prayer will be, here am I, Lord. Lord, what would thou have me to do? It's not enough to pray for somebody else to go. Our prayer needs not to be for other laborers. In all of Scripture, I am not aware of a single instance of somebody who prays for somebody to be sent in their place. The man in Macedonia prayed for laborers to come over and help. Isaiah and Paul prayed that they would be sent. But I don't know anybody in all of the Bible who said, Lord, send that person instead. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for those who are going or for others to go. I am saying this, we should not allow that type of prayer. Lord, we need more laborers. I pray every single day for laborers for the far north. Every day without fail, I pray as God gives me opportunity and breath, every day I am praying for a multitude of laborers to go to Canada, Greenland, and Alaska. It's a prayer that we pray as a family regularly. We're praying for that. But that prayer should not be the Novocaine that numbs our heart to our own responsibility to say, Lord, here am I, send me. And no one moved with compassion as Jesus is moved with compassion can stay put and watch the multitudes march off to a fire. Third, as we pray, we pray with a surrendered will, we pray with a, a step forward, we, we should start where we are. Start where we are. Matthew 5 and verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Nobody asked to sing the song tonight, but we sing the song, carry the light. Jesus says, let it shine right now where you are. 
We sing it all the time in missions conferences, right? Carry the light, the blessed gospel light. Jesus says, no, just let it shine where you are. Start where you are. Here's the thing. And we covered some of this in Sunday school, so I'm going to go through it quickly. But compassion is not about a place. It's about people. And we need to recognize that if we don't have compassion where we are, we're never going to have compassion in another place just because we got there. And Jesus told us in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 6 and verse number 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel. What's interesting is that word go does not have the idea or imply that you're being sent so much as this, while you are going. While you are going, preach the gospel to every creature. Here's why. Because the best way to be moved with compassion is to go amongst the multitudes and just begin witnessing to them. You want to get a burden to go soul winning and for souls? You know how you do it? Go soul winning. That's the way to do it. Knock on another door. Tell another person. The surest way to keep motivated in reaching the multitudes is simply to keep on going, reaching the multitudes. And when you start ministering to the multitudes and you meet the, 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 uh, the man in Quebec, we, his, he always went by the name Junior. In fact, Pastor, I think you met him on the roof of our building in Shikutami. Uh, you know, he, he eventually, he, he got saved. Uh, when you meet the, the juniors of the world, when you meet the, the young down and outers who are in prison as youth, who are not even 18 years old and are lighting themselves on fire and ruining the rest of their lives, when you meet others like that and you minister to them, you will begin to have this burden for them. And then fourth, and then I'm done, as you pray, keep in mind the sovereignty of God. He is the Lord of the harvest. We're, we're just the doers, the laborers. So we labor wherever he places us. And I'm not going to re-preach and retouch Sunday school, but I'll read to you Acts chapter 13 and verse 2. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. I think too often we have this idea, I'll minister in that place or this place or this place. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. As you're going, minister. As you're going, preach the gospel. Let your light shine right here where you are. You don't wait till you get somewhere else. So if somebody were to say to you, hey, I hear that Christians, um, they're supposed to be compassionate people. What does that mean? Well, it would be hard to really describe it all in just a couple minutes, wouldn't it? It starts with a considerate study which will lead you to see a critical situation, which will lead you and I to obey, hopefully, the Lord's command for a correct supplication. One question, I'm done. When is the last time you were moved with compassion? Our Father, we, we come to you tonight and we do thank you for your goodness and your love. And I do pray now as pastor comes and closes the service that Simply have your will on the way in our lives and that this week, Lord, we would be as you, moved with compassion for those around us. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name.